Hello and welcome to What Could Be Better Than a Home, the podcast of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. This is the third episode, Volume 1, What is a Community Land Trust? Chapter 3, If You Can Dream It, a CLT Can Do It. Community land trusts can be adapted in so many different ways. In the last episode, we looked at one way a CLT can create affordable housing, through home ownership. But that's not all a CLT can do. Almost any type of affordable housing initiative could be made even better by using a CLT. That's because a CLT can reserve housing as affordable forever. Other types of affordable homeownership programs cannot keep that promise. In this episode, we'll take a look at some ways other than single-family homeownership that a CLT can be used to create affordable housing. We'll travel up and down the East Coast in search of new ideas for affordable housing. We'll visit limited equity cooperatives in Washington, D.C., and end up in Albany, New York. But first, our episode starts in New York City, Midtown Manhattan to be exact. Part 1. Too Good for Madonna Welcome to New York City. We're always glad to see new faces, and I'm happy to help you find a new place to live. To help get you oriented, the street we're on is called Central Park West, because it travels along the western edge of Central Park. We're at 72nd Street, just a stone's throw from our first stop for today. Yes, that's it right there on the corner. The Dakota. The Dakota is a beautiful 10-story building with large gables and an ornate facade. It's got great views of the city, access to exciting arts and culture, and beautiful Central Park is across the street, 843 acres of green oasis within the bustling metropolis. If the building looks familiar, you've probably seen it in Rosemary's Baby. All of the exterior shots of Rosemary's apartment are of the Dakota. It's so exclusive that Melanie Griffith, Antonio Banderas, Cher, Billy Joel, and Madonna all applied to live here and were rejected. No less than John Lennon, Judy Garland, Boris Karloff, and Joe Namath lived in the Dakota. What's that? You're, you're not a movie star? I thought you were a movie star. You seem so glamorous. You have good looks, the way you dress, and I can't help but notice a charisma about you. But hey, if you're worried that the Dakota is too exclusive, that's okay. Let's head three blocks north to the San Remo. Same great neighborhood, same great views, same access to Central Park. It might seem expensive to live in the San Remo, but don't let the sticker prices scare you away. Back in 2015, Demi Moore tried selling her unit in the San Remo. She listed it for $75 million, but two years later wound up settling for just $45 million. Then again, maybe the units in the San Remo are too big. Maybe you're looking for something more modest. Of course, Demi Moore's apartment was enormous. Her apartment had 14 rooms, not including bathrooms. Maybe you don't need a home that has its own library. Well, if you're willing to cut costs and go to the public library, that's okay. We'll just go half a block south to the Majestic, and you'll find that you're in luck. There are smaller units in the Majestic. The Majestic boasts the same great neighborhood and is also across the street from Central Park, but there are more modest units. You said you were looking for a studio? You know what a studio is, right? It's a home with one room plus a bathroom. Your kitchen, bedroom, and living room are all the same room. I checked on Zillow for you.
Studios in the Majestic are valued at $3 million. Maybe a studio is too small? As of November 15th, there is a two-bedroom for sale for $5 million, and a four-bedroom for sale for $18 million. Why, why are you looking at me like that? Oh, got it. You're not quite ready to buy. Well, fortunately, there is also a rental listing. You could rent a fabulous three-bedroom apartment in the Majestic for the low, low price of $24,000 per month. Utilities are included with your rent, so you do have to take that into consideration. I hope you liked our tour of Midtown Manhattan. These three buildings, the Dakota, the San Remo, and the Majestic, are some of the most desirable units of housing in the entire world. They're also some of the most expensive. They're beautiful, located in Midtown Manhattan, and have gorgeous views of Central Park. So why has our affordable housing podcast gone off the rails and fawned over luxury Midtown Manhattan housing? Well, all three of these buildings are housing cooperatives. That means that the residents own the unit they live in, and collectively, with the rest of the building's residents, own the building. It's sort of like a condominium, but instead of a developer owning the building while the residents own their individual unit, the residents own both. Not only does each resident own their own unit, but the residents together own the building. Sometimes, cooperative housing is suggested as a remedy to the American housing affordability crisis. The logic is that landlords or for-profit condominium owners might raise housing costs with abandon. But these three Central Park West buildings show that housing cooperatives are subject to the same price pressures as for-profit apartments or for-profit condominiums. Actually, we only looked at Central Park West housing cooperatives. Central Park East has even more expensive housing cooperatives. On the webpage for this episode, you can find links to City Realty's list of the 10 most prestigious housing cooperatives in New York City. All 10 are Central Park East or West cooperatives, but the top six slots are held by Central Park East co-ops. The Dakota, that's the one that refused to house Madonna and Antonio Banderas, only comes in at number seven. One Central Park East cooperative currently has a unit for sale for $68 million. Clearly, housing cooperatives are not synonymous with affordable housing. Some housing cooperative advocates argue for limited equity housing cooperatives, in which the cooperative sets a rule that housing units can only be sold for an affordable price, even if there are buyers willing to pay more. This seems like a step in the right direction. But the problem is that it is always possible for the cooperative residents to eliminate the limited equity rule. We can see this in action by looking at Washington, D.C.'s very active limited equity cooperative program. Since 1980, tenants in Washington, D.C. have had a right of first refusal on their apartment, called Tenants Option to Purchase Act, or TOPA. This means that if a landlord wants to sell an apartment building, she must first offer to sell it to the people living in it for a fair price. The reason TOPA was created was because DC landlords kept throwing people out of their homes in order to convert their apartments into luxury condominiums. DC lawmakers didn't think it was right. People were getting displaced from the neighborhood they may have lived in for their entire life. 
So they created TOPA, giving tenants a right to stay put if their landlord wanted to sell. If the apartment was a single-family home, the tenant would buy the home herself and become a homeowner. But if the apartment was a multifamily building, the tenants would buy the building collectively and become a housing cooperative, like the Majestic or San Remo we toured earlier. Topa's main limitation was that many tenants couldn't afford to buy their own homes. So the Washington, D.C. City Council also created the First Right Purchase Program, or FRP, which provides subsidized 30-year loans to tenants who otherwise could not afford to exercise their rights under Topa. FRP loans do come with strings attached, however. Any cooperative created with an FRP loan must be organized as a limited equity cooperative. That is, if a resident has to move out of the cooperative, she can only sell her home for an affordable price. Remember, the entire point of TOPA was to stop affordable housing from getting converted to unaffordable housing. FRP's requirement that cooperatives be organized as limited equity housing cooperatives is in this spirit. The Washington, D.C. city government didn't want to pay for subsidized loans for affordable housing if the beneficiaries could turn around and sell their homes for an unaffordable price. Amanda Huron studied limited equity cooperatives created by FRP and found that the 20-year survival rate for limited equity cooperatives was just 66%. Of those lost, a majority were converted from affordable housing to unaffordable housing. Some became normal cooperatives, like the Dakota, San Remo, or Majestic in Midtown Manhattan. Others became market-rate rental housing. How did this happen? Remember, organizing as a limited equity cooperative is an FRP requirement. How were all these limited equity provisions getting undone? Well, a serious limitation of FRP is that once the FRP loan is paid off, there is no longer a way to require cooperatives to keep their limited equity provision. If the residents of the cooperative vote to end the limited equity provision, they are free to do so, but only if they have paid off the FRP loan. The limited equity provision doesn't end automatically when the FRP loan is paid off. The residents have to vote to end it. But once that loan is paid off, there is no way to stop residents from voting to eliminate the limited equity provision and convert their affordable housing to unaffordable housing. So if the FRP loans are for 30 years, how did so many limited equity cooperatives get converted to unaffordable housing in just 20 years? Well, if the residents could find some extra cash and pay off their FRP loan early, they could eliminate the limited equity provision early. Or, a developer could offer to pay cash to each resident to move out, and then pay off the balance of the FRP loan. Remember, FRP loans are for 30 years. Obviously, the closer you get to year 30, the smaller the loan balance. A conversion to unaffordable housing is very unlikely in year 1, when almost none of the FRP loan has been paid off. But in year 20, when only half or less of the loan is left to be paid off, it is much easier to come up with the money to pay off the FRP loan and end the limited equity provision. So if the 20-year survival rate is low, the 25-year survival rate would probably be even lower, since the remaining balance on the FRP loan is much lower with five extra years of loan payments chipping away at that loan balance. Of course, all FRP loans will be paid off after 30 years. So if the 20-year survival rate is just 66%, 
the 30 or 40 year survival rate will likely be even lower when there is no obstacle to removing the limited equity provision. Don't get me wrong, housing cooperatives are a great idea. Residents in a housing cooperative get control over their living conditions in a way that condominium residents don't. But cooperatives simply aren't a good way to create affordable housing. Not when we can find studio units in housing cooperatives selling for millions of dollars. And limited equity housing cooperatives seem like a step in the right direction. But the ease at which the limited equity provisions are removed means that limited equity housing cooperatives are an affordable housing dead end. However, if a limited equity housing cooperative has an underlying CLT, those limited equity provisions can be made permanent. In other words, a CLT can make it impossible to convert an affordable housing cooperative into unaffordable housing. Without an underlying CLT, it will always be possible to convert a limited equity housing cooperative into market rate housing. If Washington DC wanted to make sure affordable housing created through FRP remains affordable forever, it could create an entity within the FRP program similar to a community land trust. This isn't a new idea. It's already been done. In Washington, D.C., the new Columbia Community Land Trust has worked with tenants utilizing TOPA and FRP. Part 2. Albany Community Land Trust accidentally proves that a CLT can do anything. In the early days of community land trusts, a CLT always meant home ownership. Yet today, a majority of CLT homes are actually rental housing. So how did this happen? How did we go from 100% of CLT homes being occupied by owners to majority of CLT homes filled with tenants? It sort of happened by accident. In fact, CLT rental housing was only supposed to be a temporary stopgap measure. Albany Community Land Trust, that's Albany, New York, created the first experiment in CLT rental housing. To understand why they did so, we have to look at the situation of Albany before Albany CLT was even created. In other words, we have to see why Albany CLT was created in the first place. Albany CLT was formed in 1987 by United Tenants of Albany. United Tenants is still around today. They're an organization that is devoted to improving the lives of Albany's tenants, as well as the condition of Albany's rental housing. United Tenants' interest in CLTs came from a realization that they kept fighting with the same absentee landlords over and over. United Tenants might win back a security deposit illegally kept by a landlord in May, and then in June, find themselves back in court with a new tenant, trying to get back a security deposit from the same landlord. They might spend weeks or months trying to force a landlord to take care of a building code violation that was putting tenants' lives in danger, and then have a new code violation crop up in the very same building before the first one was even fixed. At times, it must have seemed that, as a tenant advocacy group, they could only fight fires, They could never actually solve Albany's rental housing problems. This was a fight that would drag on forever. However, if they were able to turn some of Albany's renters into homeowners, they could solve the problem. After all, homeowners don't have to worry about a landlord acting unscrupulously, and for the most part, 
unlike Albany's absentee landlords, Albany's homeowners took good care of their housing stock and never let homes deteriorate like Albany's worst landlords did. Add in the fact that CLT housing is permanently reserved for affordable homeownership, and a CLT seemed like an obvious next step. And so, United Tenants decided to create Albany CLT. At that time, a CLT always meant homeownership, in the model we learned about in the last episode. In that model, applicants are given financial assistance to become homeowners, but they still have to pay for most of the cost of their home by getting a normal mortgage from a normal lender. That really limits the number of people who can actually apply for a CLT home. The ideal applicant for a CLT homeownership program is someone with a good credit score and a low but steady income. Income that is too low to afford homeownership, but income that is steady enough to convince a bank that they could make a monthly mortgage payment each month for 30 years without fail. Since the CLT is providing financial assistance, the homeowner might not need to get a very big mortgage, but she will have to get a mortgage. Yet without a steady income and a good credit score, no bank would be willing to lend even a small mortgage. Obviously, this means that the people with the greatest need for affordable housing are unable to apply for CLT homeownership programs, and that's a serious weakness of CLTs based on homeownership. Now, this created a tension. United Tenants created Albany CLT to provide an alternative for Albany's renters, regardless of their creditworthiness. But Albany CLT needed to be selective of its applicants in order for the CLT to work. So on the one hand, Albany CLT needed applicants who could be approved for a mortgage. But on the other hand, many of the people United Tenants were referring to Albany CLT had poor credit. Of course, Albany CLT was not in a position to turn away referrals from United Tenants. United Tenants had created Albany CLT. If Albany CLT had to reject so many of United Tenants' referrals, then what good was it for United Tenants to create Albany CLT in the first place? So Albany CLT was not in a position to turn away referrals from United Tenants. But there was no way to proceed under the normal CLT model based on homeownership, at least not without rejecting an unacceptable number of referrals from United Tenants. No CLT had ever faced this situation before, and nobody knew what to do. At that time, no CLT had even tried to figure out how to serve people who could not qualify for a mortgage. Albany CLT had to get creative. Here's the plan they came up with. Albany CLT had the applicants move into CLT homes not as homeowners, but as renters. Albany CLT would temporarily act as a nonprofit landlord, crossing their fingers that with some credit counseling, homebuyer education, and time, their new tenants could improve their credit score and become eligible for a traditional mortgage. After all, people with low credit scores often have low credit scores because of poverty and not because they are irresponsible. Think about it this way. If you owe $900 for rent and $100 for your electricity bill, but you only have $950 because your hours were unexpectedly cut at work, you're going to pay $900 for rent and hope that $50 for your electricity bill is enough to keep the utility company from shutting your electricity off. After all, if you are a penny short on rent, you could get evicted. Next month, you can try to catch up on the electricity bill you fell short on. 
And while that's what you have to do to survive if there isn't enough money for your basic necessities, coming up short on your bills will ruin your credit. You didn't act irresponsibly. It wasn't your fault your boss cut your hours at work. But because you didn't have enough money for all your bills, you get hurt three times. First, you run the risk of getting your electricity shut off. Second, you will have to pay late fees in addition to your regular utility bill. And third, your credit score will fall lower and lower and lower each time you pay less than you owe on your bills. In sum, because many Albany CLT applicants had experiences like this, they simply could not qualify for a mortgage. Albany CLT hoped that by charging tenants affordable rents, this could create breathing space for tenants to get caught up on their bills and repair their credit. And once the Albany CLT tenants had improved their credit, they could apply for a mortgage to buy the CLT home they were living in. In this way, the initial rocky start would be a temporary blip, and Albany CLT would quickly transition from a CLT full of tenants to a normal homeownership CLT. However, this plan ran aground almost immediately in the very first Albany CLT home. The first people to move into an Albany CLT home were a pair of married retirees, Bill and Fosia. Tragically, Bill died of a heart attack. This was shortly after he retired, and just after the couple moved into their Albany CLT home. Fosia had been a renter all her life and didn't think she could handle home ownership. And anyway, with Bill gone, Fosia's retirement income was too low to qualify for any mortgage. In other words, Fosia would never be in a situation where she could become a homeowner. This was not the plan. Albany CLT planned on all of the residents eventually getting a mortgage and buying their homes. Albany CLT did not want to be a landlord. But with such low income, if Albany CLT kicked Fosia out of her home because she no longer fit in with their plan, she would have struggled to afford market rate rents. Rather than throw Fosia to the wolves, Albany CLT let her stay for the rest of her life as a tenant, charging her affordable rents. As time passed, it turned out that many Albany CLT residents were like Fosia. They moved in and were never able to get to the point where they could afford to purchase their homes. They remained renters, and Albany CLT ensured that their rent was always affordable. Even though they were renters, with a nonprofit landlord, they had the same security as a homeowner. Some residents were eventually able to qualify for mortgages, but decided they would rather remain renters. And Albany CLT decided that was okay. If they ever wanted to buy, they could. But if they chose to remain renters, they would be guaranteed quality housing at an affordable price for as long as they wanted to stay. The second Albany CLT home actually did go according to plan. A woman named Judy moved into the second home, and she eventually was able to qualify for a mortgage and jumped at the opportunity to become a homeowner. Judy had experienced incredible housing instability. She had lived in 30 different apartments in her lifetime. Maybe some of you can relate to this. And she was very relieved to have the opportunity for the stability offered by homeownership. It did take her some time to get her credit to the point where she could qualify for a mortgage, but once she was ready, she got to buy the Albany CLT home she had been renting.
Part 3. Section 236 housing? More like Section 007. We end today's episode with a few discontinued HUD programs. Starting in the 1950s, HUD, that's the federal government's Department of Housing and Urban Development, used to provide subsidized loans to private developers to build multi-unit apartment buildings. Three of these programs were called Section 202, Section 236, and Section 221D3. Evidently, HUD wasn't too creative in how it named affordable housing programs. Many of the private developers who benefited from these subsidized loans were for-profit, though some were non-profit and a handful were actually cooperatives. All of these programs were eventually discontinued. The last one to be discontinued, Section 202, was ended in 1990, though a distinct grant-making program carries the Section 202 name. These were not small programs. All told, these three programs created a whopping 775,000 units of housing all across the country. What's more, most of these units were affordable. Or at least, they were temporarily affordable. See, HUD didn't make subsidized loans for the benefit of for-profit developers. HUD's goal was to create affordable housing. So, in exchange for these subsidized loans from HUD, developers were required to charge affordable rents in some or all of the units, until the loan was paid back in full. Most loan terms were for 30 to 40 years, but some loans lasted for 50 years. So these three programs created several hundred thousand units of affordable housing, but only temporarily. Because these programs were discontinued decades ago, it's really hard to find information on them. In my research, things got pretty strange. The only reliable information I could find on these programs was from a report published by the Congressional Research Service, or CRS, in 2012. CRS is actually a part of Congress. If a congressperson or senator ever needs technical information to understand or write a bill, they can utilize CRS to do the research for them. CRS is nonpartisan. They're supposed to do specialized research so that elected representatives can make informed decisions. Now, even though these programs were all discontinued decades ago, because the loans were for terms of two to five decades, many of these buildings were still paying off their HUD loan and were thus still obligated to offer affordable rents. This report was written because many of the loans created by these HUD programs were about to be paid off around 2012 when the report was written. Remember, once those loans are paid off, the developers are under no obligation to charge affordable rents. They can charge whatever they want. Some representatives in Congress wanted to figure out how to stop the affordability requirements from expiring, and enlisted CRS to collect more information. Here's where it gets really weird. I found the report on everycrsreport.com, an unofficial archive of CRS reports. When I tried finding the report on the CRS website, it's not there. If this doesn't sound like some kind of spy thriller yet, the report and I link to it on the website, so you can verify this if you don't believe me. The names of the authors of the report had been removed to protect the author's identities. The two authors of the report are listed as parentheses 
Name redacted, close parentheses. Specialist in housing policy. Why the authors needed to have their names redacted on something so pedestrian as discontinued HUD loan programs, I do not understand. So, housing policy spy thrillers aside, the big picture is this. For the few decades between the early 1950s and 1990, HUD funded the construction of a substantial amount of private housing. In exchange for this funding, developers were required to charge affordable rents, but only temporarily. In some cases, these affordability requirements lasted for 50 years, but they were temporary. In 2012, when this mysterious CRS report was written, Congress was scrambling to preserve some of these units as affordable, as the affordability requirements expired. All the options they came up with were very expensive. Basically, HUD would have had to pay the owners of those properties more money than they could get by charging market rate rents. In the end, some money was set aside to preserve the affordability of some Section 236 housing, but many of the 775,000 units were converted to market rate housing. Ultimately, several hundred thousand units of affordable housing were lost. This didn't have to happen. These HUD programs had the same problem as the FRP program in Washington, D.C. HUD never figured out how to make the affordability requirements last beyond the lifetime of the loan. However, if HUD had set up an entity similar to a community land trust, they could have prevented the loss of several hundred thousand units of affordable housing. This gets at a really important question. When the public subsidizes a private company, what does that private company owe the public? Think of how unfair it would be if you and all your neighbors were forced to pay for the construction of an apartment building in your neighborhood, but then someone else started making money hand over fist collecting sky-high rents. HUD's affordability restrictions are a way of recovering the public's investment in those properties. Yes, you can eventually profit off this building and run it like a business. But first, this property has to serve the public benefit. You have to charge affordable rents. This makes a lot of sense, but it also seems backwards. Remember, these affordability requirements lasted for 20 to 50 years. 40 years after the building was finished and the architects, developers, bricklayers, the people who actually built the building have probably retired. The owners of the building either acquired or inherited it. They had nothing to do with the building's construction. In other words, the people whose profits are limited by affordability restrictions are the people who actually built the building, and the people whose profits are not limited by affordability restrictions are the people who did not build the building. That seems backwards. There is no simple answer to this question of how we treat private companies that benefit from public subsidy. Conclusion In today's episode, we looked at a few different ways a community land trust can be used to create or preserve affordable housing. A CLT can guarantee that, forever, a unit of housing is reserved for affordable housing. That's a promise that a lot of other affordable housing programs can't make, and the major advantage of CLTs. As we saw today, CLTs can work with any type of owner-occupied or rental housing. 
And though we didn't cover it, CLTs have partnered with public housing authorities, been an integral part of inclusionary zoning ordinances. Your imagination really is the limit. CLTs are so flexible that they can be adapted to be useful for any type of affordable housing program. CLTs are an ideal partner to make a great affordable housing program even better. What Could Be Better Than a Home is a production of Milwaukee Community Land Trust, LTD, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Research was done by me, Chris Kirko.